Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, and in fine tradition this time we're going to cover something a little bit different to what we've normally covered on this show. So I want to go in the next series that we're going to do into the world of tech startups, venture capitalism, and to tell the story of SoftBank's Vision Fund, and how $100 billion that was supposed to revolutionise the future of technology has actually gone towards inflating a techno-bubble bad ideas, boondoggles, and occasionally, in some instances, something even worse than that. Now, this is not necessarily a particularly new story. I'm certainly not the first one to tell it, and there were plenty of people who were calling this at the time or in advance who deserve more credit than I do. But it does extend more widely beyond SoftBank, and we're going to make some points about the tech industry here that do extend more widely beyond SoftBank. But I think SoftBank is just the the Ne plus ultra, the most illustrative case of what we're talking about here. And the story in itself is so fascinating and has occupied such a large fraction of my brain recently that I've just wanted to tell this story and that's what I'm going to do. I've been reflecting on these stories, some of these companies and trends that I've been following in the last few years. So partly I want to tell you about this stuff just because I've been thinking about it so much. And I also want to tell you all this story here and now because I think it's important to realise just how irrationally exuberant the pre-Covid world was, how technological hype has led us astray, and how much money supposedly clever people invested in ridiculous ideas, rather than genuinely preparing us for the risks of the future. And maybe, maybe, maybe finally this time, we can actually learn something from it. So that's why I'm going to tell you the story of SoftBank's blurry vision. But let's begin by explaining what SoftBank is and what its vision fund is. So SoftBank, nominally, is a huge international conglomerate and telecoms company. It's the second largest company in Japan. It was founded by Masayoshi Son back in 1981, and he's really taken on the mantle of one of these visionary founders of large technology companies that have exploded to become massive in in recent decades. So you think Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, that kind of thing. And like all of these founders, There are some pretty incredible stories of the guy's entrepreneurship that go right back to create and reinforce the sort of myth of the founder that increasingly pops up when we talk about tech companies. His grandparents were born in Korea, and his parents were squatters in Japan. He moved to the US at the age of 16 to get a high school education. While in college, he invented an electronic translator that helped make him his first million dollars. And he made a further million dollars by importing used video game machines from Japan. This in the late 1970s, when... Things like Space Invaders were just coming out and taking the world by storm. The money from this and other investments was what first allowed him to set up SoftBank as a going concern. And the rest, as they say, is history. Here's an article that was written up by the New York Times back in 1995 about Son, where you can see the way that people typically report on the guy. It said, quote, When he was trying to start his software distribution business in the early 1980s, Masayoshi Son rented a huge booth at a Japanese consumer electronics trade show and offered software companies free space to display their products. The booth was mobbed, but retailers that attended the show dealt directly with software manufacturers, bypassing Mr. Son, the middleman. I probably made back 120th of the cost of the booth, Mr. Son told the Harvard Business Review. After that, many people were laughing at me. They said, that guy's really dumb. He's a nice guy, but dumb. No one calls Mr. Son dumb now. They call him the Bill Gates of Japan. The 37-year-old entrepreneur has built his Tokyo-based company, the SoftBank Corporation, into the leading distributor of software and a major publisher of computer magazines here, parlaying it all into a $1.5 billion personal fortune. Now, on top of his 
role as the founder of this uh, software company and now it's expanded into a big conglomerate that owns many different companies there are probably a couple of things that son is particularly famous for one is his investment in a chinese e-commerce company called alibaba he picked up a 20 million dollar stake in alibaba back in 2000 and this turned out to be a pretty good investment as alibaba ended up being the chinese equivalent of amazon and when alibaba eventually went public back in 2014 that initial 20 million investment turned into 60 billion. A 3,000-fold return on investment is obviously not bad. It's widely considered to be one of the greatest investments in history, and early this year, SoftBank's total holdings in Alibaba were still worth around $100 billion. The other thing that Son is particularly famous for is that not all of his investments historically have worked out. If you're investing heavily in a lot of internet companies in the 1990s, your career is bound to run into a bit of a road bump in the way of the dot-com crash of 2000, when the inflated expectations over the profitability of internet companies resulted in a massive glut of venture capital spending, and then a colossal market crash. Companies like Pets.com, which raised $85 million in funding, ended up being worth $0 overnight, and of course became bywords for the excess of this dot-com bubble. At its peak, Pets.com was spending hundreds of millions of dollars on warehouses and advertising with only tiny revenues to show for it. And there were plenty of other companies who had similarly fragile business models, ploughing through huge amounts of money, burning tremendous amounts of cash, often without having substantial sales behind them, let alone making profit. When things like that continue to happen, and these companies never make a profit, that's when you know that you're in one of these investment bubbles. Part of what SoftBank did in the run-up to the crash was to develop a massive venture capital arm. In July 1999, a few months before the crash, they set up SoftBank Capital Partners, which ploughed $1.2 billion into various different online ventures. Webvan was one, which raised nearly half a billion dollars from sources including SoftBank to disrupt groceries with an online service. Another online delivery service was Cosmo.com, which raised $300 million. SoftBank invested $100 million in Optimark Technologies, a company that was going to let people buy and sell shares online. They wanted to render the New York Stock Exchange obsolete. They invested $70 million in a company called All Advantage, this actually paid users to install a toolbar which would gather data on them while they surfed the internet, with the idea being that eventually they would sell that data onto advertisers, and that's how they could afford to pay their users because they were effectively paying them for the data that they got while they were surfing. Now, by November 2002, all of these companies had gone bankrupt and laid off all of their employees. And while some of SoftBank's other investments did manage to struggle their way through the crash, and of course Alibaba eventually did very well, there were plenty that had to engage in mass layoffs to do so, and many whose lofty dreams of world domination never really came to fruition, even if they did eventually pivot to find more successful business models. There were some big losers during the dot-com crash, but no one lost more than Masayoshi Son. SoftBank's share price crashed from an irrational peak of 10,000 yen in February 2000 to 154 yen in November 2002. For three days at the peak of those inflated expectations, Son was the richest person on the face of the planet, but it didn't last. Son himself is said to have personally lost as much as $80 billion in the dot-com crash, which, if true, would easily be the worst loss in history. And although SoftBank's share price has recovered somewhat and Son himself is a multi-billionaire again today, with a net worth of around $25 billion, according to Forbes, he has never quite recovered those lofty heights from before the dot-com crash, when SoftBank looked poised on the brink of world domination. All of this background is to point out that making risky, high-stakes investments sometimes gaining billions of dollars on an unlikely bet like Alibaba, sometimes losing untold sums in market crashes and when bubbles burst. 
This is nothing new for Masayoshi Son. In fact, it's been the story of his whole life. And this is all there is in the reputation of this guy. He's a visionary, a gambler, someone who has a 300-year business plan, to whom losing the greatest amount of money in history is hardly enough to make you want to give up on grand schemes and risky investments that might reshape the world. You can get a sense of how Son sees himself, or at least how he would like to present SoftBank and its mission, in a now infamous PowerPoint presentation that he gave to the SoftBank board in 2010. This presentation set out his 30-year and his 300-year vision for the company. I actually urge you to look this up online. If you Google SoftBank 2010 PowerPoint presentation, it'll show up. The whole thing is online, and it's very much worth it. The presentation is light on actual details about SoftBank's products, services, and financials. Instead, it has a slide that says, Information revolution, happiness for everyone, and SoftBank comforts people in their sorrow. One slide helpfully informs us that the saddest thing in people's lives is loneliness. Another introduces Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the psychological theory which states what is required for human happiness. Son urges SoftBank to incorporate corporate DNA that will allow the company to survive for 300 years, and to look into the far distance whenever you get lost. There are, of course, lots of stylized graphs with exponentials on them, a projection that computing power will exceed the human brain in 2018, and SoftBank is working to realise the greatest paradigm shift of humankind. All of this rhetoric will be very familiar to anyone who's ever listened to our episodes on the singularity, the idea that artificial intelligence is going to rapidly and exponentially expand and take over from human intelligence in the near future. For a business presentation, there are a lot of slides about love in this thing. SoftBank hopes to allow people in Japan to live to be 200 years old and communicate through telepathy, and of course to coexist with humanoid robots. Son points out that there are lots of threats facing humanity. He actually says that a novel virus is one of these. Although oddly he doesn't include climate change, but he does include meteorites. But then he pivots. Without explaining how SoftBank is going to address these threats, he says, yet people long for love and are hurt by love. Okay, so this is a little unfair. There are some actual, you know, tangible ideas in this presentation, aside from all this woo. Son does say that the company should focus towards strategic partnerships rather than doing everything in-house, and argues that they should head towards buddy-like relationships with companies, as well as capital relationships. He suggests a decentralised structure with lots of different arms to the business is more likely to be successful, which makes sound investment sense, I suppose. He wants SoftBank to end up being involved with thousands of different companies over the next 30 years, which is where the Vision Fund comes in. How we get the five core values of SoftBank? which he lists as 1. Focus on information revolution and contribute to people's happiness. 2. Be ambitious and tenacious of justice. 3. Commit to being an overwhelming number 1. 4. Think till our brains crush. And 5. No revolutions are down to earth. So it all explains a lot. Now, none of this is to mock Masayoshi-san too much. It's clearly important to have a vision beyond just what seems likely to make you money in the short term, or you wouldn't have anything to work towards. And you have to assume, given his career to date, that the guy has a level of business sense and experience that mere mortals like us can only dream of. But what you do see here is a hell of a lot of techno-woo that is surrounding this vision, and the vision is not very specific. It seems like someone who has read up on a lot of futurist thought, a lot of wild speculation about how technology will evolve over the next century or over the next thousand years, who's read a lot of singularitarian stuff where you extrapolate exponential growth of technology in the last hundred years into the future. 
and who's bought in almost entirely to this very hand-wavy, very science fiction, very idealised notion of how technology is developing into the near future. And he wants to rely on all of these techno-dreams about how technology is going to develop in the near term and turn them into a business plan. Oh, and he happens to have access to $100 billion to spend on pretty much whatever he wants. So it's in this context that you have to understand the SoftBank Vision Fund. When it was launched back in 2016-17, it was a pretty colossal deal. It was going to be a $100 billion fund that would invest in the next generation of technology startups and companies, looking for the next Alibaba-type investment, ploughing money into all of these futuristic technologies, AI, Internet of Things devices with chips in them, robotics companies. To give you an idea of the scale here, when announced, that was the same size as all of the funds raised by US venture capital firms in the prior two and a half years. And investing their money over a five-year time horizon, it would represent a quarter of all VC investments in the US. So there's this huge venture capital industry that's all doing the same thing, pushing money into startups in the hope that some of them will become immensely profitable and paying back your investment many times over, venturing the capital to these different companies and these ideas. This is a big industry, but around a quarter of it was just going to be this one titanic vision fund. Son described it as follows. Technology has the potential to address the biggest challenges and risks facing humanity today. The businesses working to solve these problems will require patient long-term capital and visionary strategic investment partners with the resources to nurture their success. SoftBank has long made bold investments in transformative technologies and supported disruptive entrepreneurs. The SoftBank Vision Fund is consistent with this strategy and will help build and grow businesses, creating the foundational platforms of the next stage of the information revolution. I make investments based on a vision, Son said during an earnings conference on Wednesday. I believe the SoftBank Vision Fund is the first of its kind to be making non-stop, coordinated, vision-based investments of this scale. It's a completely new animal. And amazingly, Masayoshi Son didn't want to stop there. The plan was actually to raise another $100 billion every five years. An eternal vision fund, if you like, that would keep refreshing along the way to this SoftBank 30-year or 300-year plan that would just constantly pump money into the technology sector and into startups, looking for these bets that would actually pay off. Where did the money come from for the initial vision fund? Well, the fund's cash comes from multiple sources, with the Saudi Public Investment Fund, the biggest contributor, having committed $45 billion to the project. So around half the fund is oil money via the Saudi government, basically. A further $15 billion comes from the UAE's Mubadala Investment Company, which is also state-owned with SoftBank itself contributing $25 billion. From the perspective of the Saudis and the UAE, the attractiveness of the Vision Fund is ostensibly that it allows them to diversify their economies away from being overly dependent on oil by getting some capital exposure to the global tech industry. There were some other smaller investments such as Apple who pledged a billion dollars to the fund, and the remainder is made up of investments from companies including Qualcomm and Foxconn. This funding has been described as hastily assembled, and one thing that is notable is, unlike some other venture capital funds, the Vision Fund is not averse to going into quite a bit of debt to assemble this initial capital. So this is from Prospect Magazine. The unique structure of the fund meant that the company quickly began feasting on debt to help boost returns. According to the Wall Street Journal, around 40% of the money promised to the Vision Fund by investors other than SoftBank takes the form of preferred stock which promises a return of 7% a year regardless of the fund's performance. Just like debt. That structure is peculiar for a fund so focused on young, money-losing companies with no clear path to profitability in the short or long term. 
So you can see that actually half of the money that has been promised to the Vision Fund by Saudis and others is in the form of this stock in the Vision Fund, these bonds that will guarantee to pay 7% a year. So SoftBank is going to have to pay that 7% a year and potentially give the money back, even though they are also investing it, which is a little bit interesting, a little bit of a strange structure for this investment fund. Under that structure, continues Prospect, the fund stockholders get big returns on the way up, but for the holders of the non-preferred stock, half of which belongs to SoftBank and its employees, the potential for losses on the way down is huge. A recent analysis by the Wall Street Journal showed that the fund would need to generate around $12 billion in cash every year to produce a 20% return. The Vision Fund isn't merely staked by money that functions like debt, it's also got plenty of traditional debt as well. SoftBank's $33 billion stake in the fund also relies on borrowed money, while the company itself has more than $160 billion in interest-bearing debt on its balance sheets. That figure, according to TechCrunch, is more than six times the amount the company earns on an operating basis, and just slightly less than the public debt held by the government of Pakistan. That's not the only peculiar trait of the Vision Fund. The company has extended about $5 billion in loans to employees to invest in the fund. Again, in late September, the call went out to encourage employees to take out large, personal loans to buy further into the fund and prop it up with much-needed cash. Not only is the Vision Fund overextended, so are the people most intimately involved with it. Some executives have been encouraged to borrow more than 10 times their salary, according to the Financial Times, a move that is expected of SoftBank employees as a sort of personal test of loyalty to Masayoshi Son. Son himself has already pledged 38% of his shares in SoftBank as collateral for personal loans from 19 financial groups globally, including Credit Suisse and others. So when you look at the SoftBank Vision Fund, you have to understand, not only is this a gamble in terms of the way that it is raising capital, uh, not only is it a gamble in terms of being a venture capital fund that is going to invest in lots of technologies, some of which may work and some of which won't, but also it, it's a gamble in the way that you do this. Typically, when you do venture capital, you have that money and you sort of don't mind losing most of it. it, it there's a certain willingness to accept that a lot of that money is going to be lost and perhaps it will take 10, 20 years or patient investment um, to, to, to realise the tenfold, thirtyfold gains that you're going to get from one company that really dominates the market and becomes a, a major, major corporation. But instead, we've got here something that's based on a lot of short-term debt that can't afford to be patient, something that has to make these big, huge investments uh, in companies that they think are going to expand really, really quickly. Because just to pay off this debt, they need to be able to pay out 7% a year to the Saudis and others. And as, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out, if you want a 20% return, so if you want everyone to make money on this thing, then you're going to need to have this company, this fund and the companies it's invested in, generating $12 billion a year worth of profit or value to the, to the fund, which is pretty huge when you think about it. So it's risky in more ways than one. It's risky in terms of what they're investing in, but also in the financial structure of the whole thing. As I write this in 2020, the first round of the Vision Fund is mostly spent, and SoftBank are actually trying to get the second round of funding for the Vision Fund off the ground. But the COVID-19 pandemic, and of course, what happened to the first Vision Fund in the last few years, which is what we're going to be telling you about, have cast the whole thing into some doubt. I want to discuss in a little more depth in this series the companies that the SoftBank Vision Fund has been investing in. But first I want to tell you about how I first became aware of SoftBank and the Vision Fund, because I think it kind of unintentionally illustrates a point. The University of Oxford, where I studied, has very long summers. Typically, you want to go and do something practical with that time. 
I took on an internship on one of these summers three years ago to work for a tiny startup incubator, which I won't name, although I suppose it doesn't really matter, because it's all on the public record anyway. And while it didn't really lead anywhere directly in terms of my career, I learned some pretty valuable things from my time there. At that point in my life, three years ago, the SoftBank Vision Fund was just about to launch, and I just started the show that you're listening to right now. Can you believe it's been three years? The job that I had in this little startup incubator was to try and work up the details of a pet project that my boss had been dreaming about for a long time. And it was a pretty wild one too. Essentially, we're trying to work out if it would be possible to pitch and achieve funding for a program that would look into humanoid robotics. The dream that my employer had was that it might be possible for a nimble startup to develop a humanoid robot that would essentially, one day, fulfil the role of humanoid robots that we all remember from science fiction. Robot butlers. Robots that can replace the work of humans. This sort of last invention of mankind that was going to render us all obsolete. I have to be honest here, quite quickly it became pretty clear to me that the notion that we were actually going to pull this off was extremely unlikely. But my job wasn't as some kind of robotics expert. My job was to do an awful lot of research and compile reports that would let my boss know more and more about the state of the current robotics industry. At that point, I didn't even know what venture capital was, what angel investors were, or the first thing about robotics or the tech industry in general. In hindsight, it was a really great job. I got to spend all day, every day, learning more about the tech industry, learning about venture capital, and educating myself about an entirely new aspect of the world that we live in to me. It probably won't come as a shock to you who've listened to the show that I love doing that kind of thing. And it informed a lot of my writing for Singularity Herb, where I ended up being a sort of climate and robotics expert for a number of years, alongside some of the topics we've discussed on the show about natural language processing, chatbots and so forth. A lot of the things from the earlier episodes of the show where I talk about that stuff it actually comes directly from the research that I was doing at the time for this this uh, internship. And it was in that context that I first learned about SoftBank. One of the most visible robotics companies out there at the time was SoftBank Robotics, which produced the Pepper robot, amongst others. I later learned that this was actually an acquisition, another bet made by SoftBank, if you like, who had bought a French company, Aldebaran Robotics, and renamed it SoftBank Robotics. Now you may have seen Pepper before, it's this small white plasticky robot that wheels around the place and generally has a touchscreen in its belly. Go and look up some videos of Pepper in action if you want to see what I mean and you haven't seen the robot before. The original aim of Aldebaran Robotics was going to be to produce a robot that could help people who were sick and infirm. This was what the company was working on when it first started. And this has long been part of the practical motivation for pursuing robotics in Japan. Of course, you have the cultural motivation that comes from Japan's obsession with robots, which stretches back all the way to at least Astro Boy and Tetsujin 28 Go anime back in the 1960s, but probably a lot further than that. But in practical terms and in more recent years, robots have often been invoked as the solution to the crisis of Japan's ageing population. By mid-century, over half of Japan's population are projected to be over the age of 65. When that happens, there simply won't be enough people of working age to look after them all, and to do all of the jobs that require you to be physically fit, and to pay for the tax base and so on that will support all of those elderly people. The idea then is that robots will do it. There's just one issue with Aldebaran and SoftBank Robotics' aim, if it still exists, to produce a robot that can look after the elderly, though. They can't make a robot that can do it. The reality is that robotics, despite all of the advances that we've seen, is still a long, long way away from being able to achieve the type of tasks that people have envisioned for it. 
Computer vision, object recognition, these things have come on substantially in recent years. And there are some increasingly impressive precision robotics, arms, hands, manipulators, call them what you want, that are capable of manipulating objects. But neither of these problems are solved problems by any means. And the abstract decision making, to not only recognise objects but also to recognise situations and to know how to behave appropriately in that situation, I still feel that we're a long, long way away from that because we don't have ways to program in the flexibility that the human brain has to these robots. These things are not near enough to being developed or integrated in a single system that works or behaves in the way you'd expect it to. One of the moments that demonstrated this to me when I was doing all this research for these robotics companies was watching a thing called Robocup at Home. This is effectively a robotics competition that's held every year where teams of university researchers and students, they try and get robots to complete basic tasks like going shopping, cooking meals, tidying up and so forth. Now I don't want to disparage the efforts of the researchers at all. I know that I would have no hope of doing anything like what they've done. But we take these things for granted. We overestimate how simple we are when we take our own innate intelligence as humans for granted. We assume it will be simple to program robots to do similar things. In reality though, when you watch these challenges, you see how stilted the robots are, how slow they are to move, how often they have to be prompted, how the slightest change in circumstances throws them off. Because the tasks have to be very specialised and specific for the robot to succeed. The environments have to be very clean to avoid confusion for the robot. And you can just see that we're a really, really long way away from developing humanoid robots that can do anything useful, let alone emulate what humans can do. If you had a humanoid robot now that was trying to do these tasks, it would be a little bit like speech recognition was 5, 10, 20 years ago when it wasn't so good. And you'd constantly be getting these terrible mistakes or robots saying, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you said and things like this. It's just not there yet. This is why Pepper is essentially limited to being used as a gimmick to advertise SoftBank. And as a gimmick, it works pretty well. You probably recognise Pepper if you read anything about technology or future-oriented articles about robotics or AI, because they love using photos of Pepper almost as much as they love using misleading pictures of the Terminator. Yet there's very little that Pepper robots can actually do that couldn't also be achieved by an iPad on wheels and a few apps. There's a reason why, for example, the Boston Dynamics robots like Atlas and Spot the Dog, you know, these viral videos of these robots that you see, the, the military-grade hardware-looking things that backflip and jump around and so on, they have no practical uses anywhere. They simply aren't ready to perform tasks, and it makes no sense to use them for anything practical when human labour is comparatively so cheap. In fact, this was the real moment, I think, when it became completely clear to me that we weren't going to achieve anything with the startup. Boston Dynamics was bought by Google as part of Project Replicant, which appears to have been an aim by Google to develop humanoid robots for some practical use. After five years in 2014, they sold Boston Dynamics and Replicant was quietly disbanded. When I learned about that, I thought, there's absolutely no way that we are going to be able to accomplish something here that Google gave up on, because they bought Boston Dynamics to try and make these incredibly advanced technical, uh, mechanical robots useful. They spent five years on it, They'd realised they weren't going to get a usable product anytime soon, and they sold the thing. Think of it as Google, you know, with all the programming resources and all the financial muscle that they can draw on to make such a project a success. I thought at that point that, you know, this little startup that had no funding and one employee was not going to succeed in doing something that they had failed to do when we probably couldn't even get in the door to talk to someone at Boston Dynamics. 
Of course, it probably won't surprise you to learn that a few years after Boston Dynamics was bought, sold by Google, it was bought by SoftBank. SoftBank bought Boston Dynamics for around $100 million back in 2017. Masayoshi Son said at the time, quote, Today there are many issues that we still cannot solve by ourselves with human capabilities. Smart robotics is going to be a key driver of the next stage of the information revolution, and Mark and his team at Boston Dynamics are the clear technology leaders in advanced dynamic robots. I am thrilled to welcome them to the SoftBank family, and look forward to supporting them as they continue to advance the field of robotics and explore applications that can help make life easier, safer, and more fulfilling. Now it's true that the Boston Dynamics robots are pretty amazing, but it's also true that they are far more notable for producing a series of viral videos where a robot does a backflip, or walks across uneven ground, etc., than any actual practical application. Despite what these videos illustrate, the robots are often remote controlled. They're not autonomous in many applications, and they need to be carefully programmed to actually achieve most of the tasks that you're seeing them perform in these videos. So the hardware is getting really good, but the development of that software and making that software general enough and capable enough that it can adapt to many different tasks and environments. I think that's going to be the hard part of making humanoid robots useful. For more on this, you can watch footage from DARPA's Robotics Challenge online. People often argue that the first use case for humanoid robots is going to be in missions that are too dangerous for humans. Dull, dirty and dangerous is the sort of 3Ds of the application for robotics. For example, in military applications or in responding to emergencies or disaster zones. They can argue that you need the robot to be humanoid if they're operating in the built environment, which is tailor-made for humans. After all, if you need to open a door or climb a flight of stairs, your Dalek-like robot is not going to work. And yet, if you actually watch the footage, you're far more likely to see a robot falling over despite a whole team of operatives trying to control it live, or taking 20 minutes to painstakingly climb up a few steps. The technology is seriously impressive, and perhaps when they do another challenge like this in a decade or two, the robots will all pass with flying colours. But right now, it's nowhere near ready to perform anything really useful. It was only a week ago when I was writing this, 28 years into the history of Boston Dynamics, that they actually put their first robot on sale. Spot the Dog, which is supposed to be for industrial applications, and which will set you back about $80,000 if you want to buy one. It only went on sale in June 2020, and so it's unclear whether anyone has actually found a useful application where this robot adds value, but I have a suspicion that people will struggle to find one, at least in the near term, and most of the sales will probably be either as gimmicks or as research projects, and you won't find them doing a great deal of stuff in the near term. The reason I'm dwelling on the humanoid robotics angle of SoftBank is that I think it's really indicative of where tech in general finds itself at the moment. We're in the midst of a period of massive technological hype. In fact, if anything, we're probably just falling away from the peak of inflated expectations, which was a few years ago, uh, with COVID-19 and the recession and the general uh, backlash against certain big tech companies as well. I mean, this is an era of tech hype where you can produce a robot like Sophia, which is essentially just an animatronic puppet, no more sophisticated than the puppets that they have at Disney World, really. And the hype is so real, and the marketing can be so misleading, that thousands of people will apparently believe this robot is sentient or deserves human rights. It's an era when you can stick the word AI onto a company, or machine learning, or a basic software solution that's really just done in Excel. And you can double the value that you get out of that company from investors. It's an era where we are imagining self-driving cars, humanoid robots, AI, etc. that runs or influences the world, and where we have a whole practically pseudo-religious movement in transhumanism of people who are expecting technological advances to arise in the next few decades, 
that will make them immortal, that will so utterly transform society that they won't need to worry about anything. And in many ways, I think it's an echo of the earlier dot-com bubble. Remember those technology companies from the late 1990s that we discussed that SoftBank invested in? They actually weren't terrible ideas. E-commerce is obviously huge now. It's the business model of the most valuable company on earth. The idea that you can make money by gathering people's data and selling it to advertisers like that toolbar did, that's now the business model of the third and fifth most valuable companies on earth, in the form of Google and Facebook, who provide us with a free service that costs an awful lot of money to run so that they can gather this data on us. So these aren't necessarily terrible ideas. But just because you have a good idea doesn't mean that the time is right for it, although you're not necessarily running a terrible business that can't survive and will burn unbelievable amounts of money in the process. They might not be terrible ideas, but in the 1990s, when these other companies were trying to do it, either the time wasn't right for those ideas, or they were just badly managed and managed to convince people that they weren't because they could see the potential, if not the actual facts of what was going on. And it feels like tech is at a similar stage now. It's a long way ahead of itself, in the midst of a hype bubble that isn't backed up by the solid results of what the technology can actually achieve. And for me, humanoid robots are the absolute pinnacle of these inflated expectations at the moment. They are a perfect sci-fi technology. Because everyone can imagine a humanoid robot, how it would act, how it would behave. We have examples of them throughout science fiction that people can draw on. But just because you can conceive of a technology doesn't mean that it's actually any easier to produce. People half-read endless headlines about AI and speculative TV shows or proclamations by figures like Elon Musk and Masayoshi Son, for that matter. Or they see misleading demonstrations of these robots online. And they often get sucked into the notion that these things are way, way further advanced than they actually are. Far fewer people, including me, have a realistic idea of how close these technologies are to being useful, and whether many of them are practical at all, more to the point. Just because you can make a robot that does pizzas doesn't mean you need to or should. It might be a few decades of slower, more sustained and less hyped up progress before any of these technologies become mainstream and ubiquitous, like smartphones and social media are today. And this is very true when it comes to robotics. Some of the more advanced applications of machine learning, especially when people call it AI, to endless generations of mobile apps that are all hoping to be the next company that will be valued at a billion dollars for disrupting some industry that we all take for granted. And I think it happens to be true when it comes to blockchain and self-driving cars as well, and Internet of Things devices also. And these all happen to be areas that the SoftBank Vision Fund is interested in or invested in. And SoftBank's very visible investments in robotics companies have positioned it as the company that is most forward-thinking, most ahead of its time, most visionary, you might think. But for all that's written about them, for all the flashy images and demonstrations, and for all the overinflated hype, there's not a great deal of actual value there, as SoftBank has been finding out over the last couple of years. Lots of these investments have already wound up being money down the drain, and more will, I think. And the tragedy of this is that there are plenty of exciting and vital technologies that could be invested in, that aren't even seeing a penny of these SoftBank billions. I think there's a very real possibility that we are just past the peak of a large, overinflated tech company bubble. And when it pops, just as occurred in the 1990s, SoftBank will end up having made quite a few bets that look terrible in the long run. And I think COVID-19 is really going to be the turning point, the accelerant that is going to pop this bubble, and potentially send us all into a tech winter where these inflated expectations come crashing down. There have already been a lot of discussions of this nature surrounding why Silicon Valley has been unable to address COVID-19, which I think is an interesting question that I want to address in some future episodes.
but there's an issue with bubbles. Some of the companies SoftBank has invested in may have good ideas, but as appears to be the case with a number of them, others have promised a lot only to turn out to be vaporware or running some kind of scam. Uh, so others have technology that is light years away from being useful, others have unsustainable business models that require burning huge amounts of cash to survive. Many others are just posing as tech companies and actually running an unprofitable business in another industry and hyping up the amount of technology they use to justify an overinflated valuation. And others are the kind of terrible ideas that somehow manage to raise millions of dollars in an environment of irrational exuberance when you're at the peak of a hype cycle and when your investment structure is based on whether Masayoshi Son likes the cut of the jib of the founder of the company. And these are the things that can fly for a while before it all comes crashing down. And that's the issue with bubbles, when something happens and the music stops, say something like a global pandemic and economic recession, they burst. And then we see behind the curtain. Next episode we'll talk about the first of SoftBank's big bets, the bet it made on a company that has successfully incinerated billions of dollars over the last few years. You've probably heard of them, but maybe you don't know quite how bad it is behind the scenes. You've been listening to Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at physicpodcast.com. There, there is a contact form, comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to see us cover, topics you don't want to see us cover, uh, things you'd like to know about the show, things you'd like to ask me. Um, anything can go, and I will respond to those emails as quickly as I can get them. You can also find us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. You can find us on Facebook at Physical Attraction. There are things you can do to help the show. On the website, physicalpodcast.com, you will find a Patreon. You can download some bonus episodes from us there for small donations per bonus episode. You will find the PayPal link where you can send us a donation if you would like to. You can always help us out by reviewing the show on iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. You can help the show by telling as many other people who might be interested in it to listen to it. Recommend them some specific episode that you'd like that they might be interested in. Anything like that. It's all very helpful to help us keep the show going and help spread the word about what we're doing. Until next time then, please take care. Thank you.